Third, we are not reading all five chapters today. We will be dipping into just a few. There will be three, chap- three sermons that cover the five chapters more in depth as we go along. Today is just giving you an overview. So we'll actually start reading in Leviticus chapter 10, a few verses, and then dipping into just two short sections and the, and the end of this to give you a flavor of God's word. Passages that are not familiar to us, but as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, for what was written in the former times were written for our teaching that we may have hope and be blessed. So let us give careful attention to God's word. We'll start at Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8 through 11, and then read two other short sections. This is God's word. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or small, strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has commanded them by Moses. Going to Leviticus chapter 11, we'll be reading the first eight verses talking about clean and unclean animals that the people can eat. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you should not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Turn over to Leviticus 13. We'll be reading the first six verses about laws with leprosy or skin rashes. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Whenever a person has, the skin of his, has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or one of his sons, the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white on the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread on the skin, the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. And then reading one verse in Leviticus 15.31, summarizing all these rules. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle. That is in their midst. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we come to a part that is a different time period from where we live in. You worked in a different way, and yet you had the same plan of salvation. 
The same Spirit inspired Moses to write these laws for his people, and they are rich and for us as well to learn. And so would you give us humble hearts? Would you give us hungry hearts? Spirit, would we not leave here without being changed, that we might see Jesus, for we pray this in his name. Amen. We'll probably want to turn back to Leviticus chapter 10, because that's where we'll be spending most of our time. When I was in basic training, as it was the the custom, I had three drill sergeants. One was a hard-driving infantry sergeant. One, when he wasn't a drill sergeant, was a womanizing trucker. He drove trucks for the army and was known for fooling around. And one was an artillery sergeant who happened to be a Pentecostal preacher. Now, you tell me who was the craziest of them all. It was the preacher. Drill sergeant Patton. And one of his favorite places was the kill zone. Now, we lived in an open, long, rectangular bay. Sixty soldiers in there, sixty recruits. And on one short side, there would be the drill sergeant offices. And then around the rest of the sides, there would be wall locker, bunk bed, foot locker, and then three to four tiles, you know, those one-foot tiles of white linoleum. And after that, there was one rectangular line of black linoleum. So you you get it, right? There's this this, this long rectangle, we've got sixty guys, Furniture, a little bit of white linoleum, and then this inner black rectangle, just one, one linoleum, and then the inside was more white, and that dead space was called the kill zone. Now, there were rules for the kill zone. You stepped in it, you were dead. Kids, it's kind of like playing lava. You ever play lava? I did when I was growing up, and so you have things on the floor, and so you try to step on things without touching the carpet, and, and if you do, something happens, and you, you might say, oh, you burnt up. Well, there were consequences. You could, you could get certainly chewed at for not respecting my kill zone. You might do push-ups. You might even get sent to, to KP to wash dishes. Now, there were exceptions to this kill zone. The drill sergeants could walk along the kill zone all what they wanted. In fact, they seemed to like walking through the kill zone. If a drill sergeant threw your sock into the bed, into the kill zone because you left it on your bed, you could ask for permission. If you were cleaning or, or buffing or painting the kill zone, you were allowed in. But generally, it was off limits. Now, this made life difficult. Already you had 60 young men living in a big rectangle, and, and you had these four tiles to move by each other, sometimes with gear, and of course, quickly, 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 quickly. And what do you want to do if you want to visit your buddy on the other side of the room? Well, instead of walking 20 feet across the kill zone, you have to walk 100 feet around it. Well, strange and arbitrary as this might seem, there was a point to the kill zone. I would become a soldier. There might be times when I would be in a dangerous situation that would require my full attention. I might need to be crouched behind an uncomfortable fighting position, and if I stuck up my head at the wrong time, I might lose it. A slight mistake could result in injury or death. And so the kill zone was a way of teaching me about being an army soldier, my new life, to think and act appropriately, developing certain character traits, self-awareness, vigilance. The kill zone was part to help shape and mold me to become a soldier. And yet it was temporary. When I graduated, I went back upstairs and I walked right across that kill zone. No longer applied to me. Well, the kill zone can help you, as an example, understand some of the cleanliness laws in Leviticus. They seem so strange and arbitrary, but with no good rules behind, no good reasons. You can eat a cow because it has split hooves and chews a cud, but you can't have a, a, eat a camel or a pig or, or anything else along those lines because it doesn't either have split hooves or chew the cud. What is going on here? 
But in fact, there is a logic, which we can often understand, and there is a goal here, that God has rescued Israel from Egypt to be his people, and they are to be special and set apart. And these laws, in a very tangible way, are given to teach Israel to treat God as holy, so to treat him as special, and so therefore also live holy lives. So here's the idea of the sermon today. Here's the truth, that God's laws are not a burden, but a gift to guide you. They are not a burden, but a gift to guide you. And as we're going to go here, I hope you see this. This is not just for the Bible geeks out here to know how this works out, but but applies to all of our lives as we follow Christ. Well, as we start, I want to ask a, a question that develops the setting. Why did the Lord give these laws at this time right here? Well, if you're reading through Leviticus, you will very quickly... Realize that God is holy. If you were here yesterday, uh, last week in the morning, you heard from Daryl Updike preaching from Isaiah 6. Um, last evening, we, we preached that God is not like you, and that is a good thing. He is a holy God. He is, he is morally perfect. He is, he is special in, in, in every way, different than us, even in the ways we connect in his image. There's, there's ways that God is different from us. And God reveals these laws during a time when Israel experiences the double-edged sword, the blessing of his presence, which is also a holy danger. Right before we read, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were just set apart as priests, holy priests, they offered unauthorized fire, not as the Lord commanded. And so the fire which had come down from the Lord in his presence to burn up the burnt offering to show that God is with his people in a powerful way, now comes out from his presence and consumes them and they die in the tabernacle. And we don't know what they did exactly. They, they, it may be possible that they had tried to enter the most holy place without instructions. But, but certainly they did not do as the Lord commanded and they're consumed by his glory. And so this tragedy raises the question, well, what about the tabernacle that's, that's been set apart? God's holy presence has been profaned. It's been made common. And the tabernacle has been polluted by the dead bodies of Nadab and Abihu. And what Israel needs is a way to clean the tabernacle. Not, not just from the impurity and sin of these two men, but all of Israel. And so in chapter 16, God will provide the Day of Atonement. That's where Aaron the high priest goes into the most holy place, following exactly God's instructions. And he offers a sacrifice for him and his people. In between those two bookends, the Day of Atonement and the death of Nadab and Abihu, come these laws about ceremonial cleanliness. You must understand where these laws are given between those two because it's very important. And it's right after the death of of these two men that the Lord appears and speaks directly to Aaron. and, And we read in Leviticus 10, verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Now, in that short verse, the Lord lays out a mindset that will set Israel off from the nations and train them to live as holy people. And we're going to take some time just looking through those four things to lay it out so you can understand it better. This is helpful for not only understanding Leviticus and the Old Testament, but even, even the New Testament. These, this idea of clean and unclean goes through all of Scripture. So, Paul, will take slide one. And this first slide... It goes from, you get this mostly from Gordon Wenham's commentary on, on Leviticus and also uh, modified a little bit by, by Michael Morales and his commentary. What you see here is a spectrum of holiness. We're going from life and order to death and chaos. By the way, thank you for, to our new secretary, Julia Stasov, for preparing these slides. 
And so you see two contrasts. And you, first you see is the holy and the common. Right? Holy and common. So let's look at holy. Holy means to be set apart as special. Now, there is a way in which God is holy in himself and, and we are not like him. But, but people can be set apart as holy to the Lord, various degrees of holiness. In the Old Testament, the priests were holy. Nazarites, people who went through certain rites and took vows, were holy for a period of time. Food, certain articles of clothing or, or the, the, the tabernacle um, table and, and altar were holy. And you must be sanctified to become holy. With the ceremony provided by the Lord uh, for people that always involve blood of some sort, a sacrifice. And, and these people who are holy spe- enjoy a special status as belonging to the Lord. The best example is how the high priest wore a turban with a plate on a golden plate, and on the golden plate was engraved, holy to the Lord, belonging to the Lord. So you have holy. Then you have common. Anything Common is not necessarily good or bad here. It's simply the opposite of holy. By definition, anything that is not holy is common. Now, common things are either clean or unclean. And this is, these are the terms that you see in Leviticus. So that's where we're going to dig down a little bit more. So let's go to clean. Under common, clean. Clean is really the middle ground between the holy and the unclean. You must never let the holy and the unclean touch. That's what happened when Nadab and Abihu died. By their disobedience, they were in God's holy presence. They became unclean and they were consumed. Now, to be clean means to be fit for God's presence. It obviously means free of dirt, but there's a fuller meaning in that. It means pure, normal, whole, healthy. That's some of the rationale besides some of the laws, what is permitted and what is not. You usually had to be clean to be in the camp of God's people. For very specific reasons, you could be temporarily unclean, but you had to be generally clean to be in the camp. You must be clean to be inside the outer court of the tabernacle. You could not go in as an unclean person. You also must be clean before you could be made holy, before you could be sanctified. And you couldn't go from simply being unclean to holy. You had to pass through being clean first. Well, then there's unclean. Unclean simply means being unfit for the presence of God. You are dirty either because of sin or you've become ceremonially unclean by the laws God has laid out. Now, ceremonial uncleanliness was a very serious thing. It was contagious. So if someone was ceremonially unclean and you touched them, you became unclean. Now, that you could be permanently unclean, such as certain animals. Uh, Leviticus is not too concerned about that. What they're concerned about is people who were clean but then become unclean, because that's not how it's supposed to be. And so they're very concerned about how you avoid becoming unclean and how you can be made clean again. Now, this idea of uncleanliness helps you understand small details even in the New Testament, as, for instance, why did the Jewish leaders not enter Pilate's house when Jesus was arrested? Remember that? that Jesus was arrested and they wouldn't come into Pilate's house. Why was that? Because it was a Gentile's house, and it was the night of the Passover, and they wanted to celebrate it, and you couldn't celebrate it if you were unclean. Major issues with their heart, they got the ceremony part right. Now, if you put this together, you say there's, there's a spectrum going from, from death to life. Um, it is much easier to go from holy to unclean. You can do that in a minute. It's a lot harder to go from unclean to clean to holy. Each one of those takes a process. It takes time. You heard with the leper, it takes seven days. That's the same thing with the ordination. The goal is for God's people to meet with him. So you need holy priests bringing clean people before the Lord. 
And Paul, we, let's go ahead and do slide two at this point. And so, so here you see, um, just illustrating, holy, clean, unclean. So to be unclean, to go clean, you're cleansed, and then sanctified, and then going back, if you're holy, and you profane, you become clean. If you pollute, you become unclean. Paul, do I have this slide about the camp in there? The next one, circle? So here you see just an idea of how this, this would work out in Israel's life. The tabernacle was always holy, and in fact, within the tabernacle was increasing levels of holiness. But then in the camp, those four rectangles would be the four camps that each had three tribes of Israel. The camp must be clean. And then outside the camp, well, that's what's unclean. And that's if you were permanently unclean, that's where you would have to go. That's good for now, Paul. Thank you. So this is a background of why a holy God gives laws to these people at this particular time. They're temporary, but they're, they're a blessing to help his people live out their identity as this new nation. But why? Why give them laws about ceremonial uncleanness? Isn't sin the real issue? Isn't sin the problem? So let's explore that a little bit. The Lord gives the ceremonial laws to guide his people, the, the clean and the unclean. So let's, let's dig into this idea of unclean now. There are two ways that you can be unclean. The first is to be morally unclean, right? Have an inner moral dirtiness that's caused by sin. And this moral uncleanliness is caused by violating God's eternal law, which is, which is it's the reason that this law is because it reflects his character, who he is as creator. This is who God is. And so this is shown in, in, in thematic form in creation. You certainly see this in the Ten Commandments. And these are eternal truths because they reflect who God is in his being. So instance, don't lie. Why don't you lie? Well, because God is truth. Keep the Lord's day holy. Why is that? Because in creation, God rested on the Sabbath and set it apart as holy. You don't steal. Well, because God is a creating God and a working God, and so you should too. And so all these themes, worship, work, family, marriage, in Genesis you find, and then you see it in, in the Ten Commandments. And when you sin, then you become morally unclean because you have broken a law that reflects who God is. Just stop and think about that. It's not a little thing. You know, God's moral laws, it's not like some killjoy puts up a, a no fishing sign in a fully stopped public pond because they just don't want you to have any fun. Right? You're going against the holy character of your creator who right now gives you life and breath. Now, the Old Testament recognizes this type of uncleanliness. Perhaps the most famous example was when King David, who was a man after God's own heart, committed adultery with another man's wife. Well, he should have, when he should have been off going off to war, and then he gets her husband killed to cover it up. Major moral impurity, uncleanness. And listen what he writes as he's crying out to the Lord for mercy in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So there's David recognizing radical dirtiness inside of him because he's broken God's moral law. So that's the, that's the inner, inner moral law. And that's the root problem of sin. But then God gives Israel another way of 
looking at cleanness. Another category, the outer or ceremonial uncleanness, where touching a dead body or eating certain foods or coming in contact with certain bodily fluids. This type of uncleanness is all over Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament. Perhaps the best example, remember Daniel and his friends are taken off to Babylon, and there they're given the best food possible, the the choice of the king's table, but they resolve that they will not defile themselves because it includes unclean meats. Paul, do you have the the slide with this this unclean and circles the next slide? So here what you see is that outside, you know, is clean, and then there's there's a, a ritual impurity, and then in the middle, I'd say, is sin, which is the moral impurity. And, and, and so you see, Scripture can speak of being unclean in two ways. And you could ask, well, is, is all uncleanness sin? Well, no. Not, not all. Not all, all sins make you unclean. But you can be ceremonially unclean. For instance, being a leper. And that's not sinful. All right, Paul, thank you. That's good. Now, when you read through Leviticus, you will quickly see that these laws cover every facet of life. They are life-altering. They are time-consuming. And in our current post-everything, post-enlightenment, post-modern, post-truth, post-Christian mindset, we've gotten rid of most ceremonies and and rituals, and and we dress down on most occasions. You ask, why? Why go through all the trouble? What a burden. Why all these detailed rules? Isn't God being arbitrary? Is he just like a drill sergeant having fun at at his, his soldiers' expenses? The Israelite would answer, no. No, God's law is not a burden, it's a gift. The same David who wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the days. David wasn't just talking about the moral part. He was talking about all of it. To the Israelite or the Jew, uh, both the moral and the ceremony and the civil were wrong because God said so. It's, It's what made Israel different, what set them apart. They say it's what teaches us who God is and how who we are. You see, the, the ceremonial uncleanness was, was a temporary truth that reflected a reality of sin. It's not sin, but God decided that for a certain time in history to use it as a teaching aid. Like sin, being unclean in this way brings you into a state of unworthiness before him. Like sin, it's destructive. It's contagious. It's a powerful reminder that sin corrupts and makes you unfit for God's presence. Much of the uncleanly lust laws had to do with sin or the direct result of sin. Think about death and sickness and deformity. This was all caused by Adam's sin and what happened at the fall. So to give an example, this idea of clean, unclean on the outside is a bit like training wheels. Earlier this summer, my son Sammy learned to ride his bike without training wheels. Before that, he used training wheels, and, and they can help you at first. right? They, they keep you from making serious mistakes. Now, now Tommy uses that bike with training wheels, and you watch him, he, he starts off with the wheel on the one side, as he gets going, he, he writes to the middle, and then, then he'll balance to the other side, and the wheel catches him, and he'll kind of totter back and forth as he, as he goes apart. You can hear the training wheels kind of knock, 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 knock. But eventually, the training wheels get in the way, and it's time for them to come off. The first time that Sammy took the training wheels off this summer, it was scary. But in two days, he was zooming around the parking lot with the biggest smile on his face. This is fun! Well, the unclean, clean laws were like training wheels. They were a powerful reminder that God is holy. And your heart must be clean to enter his presence. And it covered every aspect of, your, of the life. The food you eat, the clothes you wear, how you care for your body. And so God's people were constantly watching, performing, avoiding, washing to be fit for God's presence. 
But if you ask the Israelites, are these laws a burden? They would answer, no. No, they're a gift to guide me. But just like the kill zone, just like training wheels, they're temporary, and they will come to an end. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 in the New Testament. In a few months, you'll hear Pastor Peter preach a sermon. I'm sure he'll go in depth on this passage. But onto the scene comes Jesus of Nazareth. In addition to be claiming to be Messiah and the Son of God, he also says, by the way, those outside clean and unclean laws, I've fulfilled them. They no longer apply. The training wheels come off. And in Mark chapter 7, there's a problem. Jesus is critiquing the tradition of the Pharisees. They have taken the training wheels, right, the guide to the law, and they've made them the main thing. They've, in fact, even added more traditions onto these ceremonial laws. It'd be like putting training wheels on training wheels. And so Jesus rebukes them. And after he rebukes them, he says this. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared, All foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, as Jesus is correcting the misunderstanding of the Jews, he said, You're missing the point. It wasn't about the outside laws. They were supposed to focus you on what really matters, the heart. And I fulfilled these laws. Now that the Messiah is here, all food is clean. And in hindsight, this makes perfect sense. Remember, the Lord gave these laws in between the death of Nadab and Abihu and the Day of Atonement. This was all about helping Israel understand what it meant to be clean before a holy God. And and the Day of Atonement was the pinnacle of the ceremonial system where the high priest would enter into the holy place with the sacrifice to cleanse him and, and the people before God. Listen to what the book of Hebrews says, commenting and contrasting between what the high priest did in the Old Testament and what Jesus did. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the earthly tabernacle, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true thing, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then the author goes into what our Lord has done And then in Hebrews 10.10 it says, And by this, his work, that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You hear that? You've been sanctified. You're not just clean in Jesus. You're made holy. And Jesus entered heaven itself and made you clean and sanctified before God, which means the day of atonement is over. It's done. And what all those laws pointed to, cleanliness before God, Jesus has accomplished 
And so they're no longer appropriate. They fall off like training wheels. But this was not an easy transition for God's people. For the Jews, this was shocking. Again, if you're tempted to see God's law, if you're tempted to see it as a burden, you would expect the Jews to say, what? No more laws? That's great! Less rules to keep! Not at all. They were shocked. They were offended. Even Jesus' own disciples found this hard. Remember our scripture reading where where Peter says to the Lord what he says when he has the dream about eating unclean animals? This certainly not, Lord. I've never eaten anything defiled or ceremonially unclean. And this is the Peter who was with Jesus when when Jesus spoke what what we just read in Mark chapter 7. He's probably the authority behind Mark's gospel. Probably gave Mark that teaching or at least put his stamp on it. And yet even years later, it takes a dream three times to convince Peter... And even then, it's hard for him. I don't want you to miss the incredible change that Jesus brings as the kingdom is realized. Now, we are self-consciously Presbyterian and Reformed in our church and our teaching, and we emphasize the continuity, the sameness of God's plan of salvation throughout Scripture for all of his people. And rightly so. If you've been in Leviticus, you hear me drawing those themes and connecting those dots. But in doing so, we must not miss the different ways that God deals with his people in different times. And you might say, well, what does it matter if you can eat pork now? It's no big deal. These, these laws have been woven into the fabric of the Jewish society for almost 1,500 years. I, I can't think of anything to compare, but just, just imagine if for some reason if you had to do away with every ceremony and ritual you knew of, weddings, funerals, family traditions, holidays, and they're gone. There's something better, but you just put them all aside. That would take some getting used to. That's the kind of change. It's the fulfillment. It's, it's not a different plan, but it's the fulfillment of the plan when Jesus comes. The old realities, like training wheels, have come off. But now what? What do you do with God's law now? There's a lot of confusion about this today. Christians speak poorly of God's law and say, well, the law has been fulfilled, so I don't need it anymore. Well, the moral and civil, uh, ceremonial and civil laws have been fulfilled. The moral hasn't. They might say, well, the law is my enemy. Uh, Paul says the, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you try to earn God's love by keeping the law, yes, it will be your enemy. It will crush you. But God still gives his law to you to guide you as a gift, as you keep in step with the Spirit. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13.8. He says... Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people like to talk, we don't want law, we want love. Paul says you want to love? Keep God's law and you fulfill it not by doing it once, but by carrying it out, by living out. And what does he quote as a definition of the law? He quotes parts of the Ten Commandments. He takes you back to the moral law. In 1 Corinthians 9.21, he talks about being under the law of Christ. Now today, when you talk about keeping God's law, some people will say, well, that's legalism. Don't want legalism. Don't want to be legalism. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Don't want to be a legalist. Well, it is legalism if you believe that your works make you right with God. But it's not when you live out the law in a way that's a response to God's gospel. 
And you know it is just as wrong to ignore God's law as it is to try to use it to gain salvation. To say this, well, Jesus said I fulfilled the law, so I don't want anything to do with it, is like saying, well, you know, I don't need my training wheels anymore, so I'm just not going to ride my bike. No, you, you don't understand. The whole purpose of training wheels was to get you to ride your bike. In the same way, the purpose of the ceremonial law was to teach you how to be clean inside, how to love God with all your heart, which means living out his law. So what should these laws teach you? As you hear them in the coming weeks preached, as, as you read through Leviticus or you're reading through the prophets, they should teach you something. What is it? Well, first, that, that God's laws are not a burden, but they're a gift to guide me. Now, on this side of the cross, I, I am not required to live out these various laws. But remember that I am, I must live out the law of Christ. And here's what you can learn, not only about God's holiness, but make no mistake, God desires you to follow his moral law with the same intensity as the people in the Old Testament followed his ceremonial law. If you pay attention as you, as you read through Leviticus, you're thinking, this is a lot of work. How much work it took to live a ceremonially clean life. And what God is saying is, living a holy life today takes just as much effort, just as much dedication. Now, praise God we have some freedoms. In fact, as I was, as I was working on this sermon, I said, you know, Elizabeth, for, for lunch on Sunday, I think I'd like some pork. Um, you know, I'm going to walk right over that kill zone. That's fine. You can, you can rejoice in that freedom. You do not have to worry about the type of food that you eat. But you must ask why you're eating it. Am I eating and drinking to the glory of God? God's law banned clothing with mixed fabrics. That wasn't normal. That wasn't this idea of wholeness. Today you can wear a cotton and polyester weave. But why do you dress the way you do? Are you trying to impress others? Are you trying to conform to a crowd? Are you spending money on clothing that frankly is a misuse of God's resources? Are you wearing clothes to the glory of God? The list could go on and on. And so when you read through Leviticus, appreciate the freedom you have, but learn the lesson that God has made me holy, so I must act in a way that honors him. And that means every area of my life I give to him. Just as even the Jews today, not realizing that the law is fulfilled, they check their meat and say it is kosher. You should apply the same seriousness in your own life. How does my entertainment shape my heart? How would taking this new job affect my ability to serve God? And you pray, Lord... You have made me holy in Jesus. I belong to you. How can I live in such a way to be holy as you are holy? So I ask you, where are you with this God today? The same God of the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament that's come in Jesus? Maybe you're like the Pharisees. Maybe you're wrongly focusing on the outside. You've got a few things that you think you do very well that's going to earn your way to God. I tell you, you do not want to walk into that holy of holies on your own with your own good works. It will crush you. You will be burned up. Maybe you're the opposite. You are glad the training wheels come off, but you don't even want to ride. You want nothing to do with God's law. I would say to you, be careful. That means you may not have a changed heart. You may really not have claimed Jesus as Lord. To both of you, I would say, turn to Jesus, the one who fulfills the law, who promises to make you holy with his own blood. To God's faithful people. You're saying, I, I love the law. I do. But I fall short. That's the fight of sanctification, isn't it? And here's an encouragement for you. The law is a command.
But it is also a promise that one day, heaven, you will be like this perfectly. You will love God and others perfectly to his glory. Isn't that encouraging? And in the meantime, you battle. You battle. Perhaps you realize today, yes, there is an area I have not been taking in my life seriously. I have not given to Christ. There's a place that I, I have not been living as holy. I have not given over to him. The Spirit's convicting you today. I want you to just choose one. Where's an area where you say, yeah, either this week or it's a consistent pattern? I have not been serving the Lord. I certainly certainly haven't been trying to be clean in this area. Choose it. Think about it. Pray and ask the Spirit to arm you for this week. And then go out in His strength and do battle with joy. God's law is not a burden. It is a gift to you. Please pray with me. Lord, we are so grateful that our starting point in our faith and our ending point is Christ. Just as the ceremonial law looked forward to Jesus and his coming as Messiah, so we too, as his followers, now look back to his death and resurrection and his work done for us. We're so grateful we do not need to earn our salvation, but we do take seriously his command to take up his cross and follow him. And so would you convict us today? There's an area where we clearly are living outside of your law. We're, we are not giving you the honor you deserve. Would you give us the joy and the strength to follow you, that Jesus would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen.